Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Alliance Global Corporate and Specialty Podcast. I'm Ken Reichman, Media Relations Coordinator in North America. Recently, AGCS released the Directors and Officers, or DNO, Insurance Insights Guide, highlighting what management and executives need to know moving forward in such a volatile world. I am joined by the Regional Head of Cyber in North America, Emmy Donovan, about trends, tips, and risk mitigation in the changing world of DNO. Thanks for joining us on this second installment of the AGCS podcast. It's very nice to have you on. Yeah, it's nice to be here. This is a, a pretty awesome um, idea. I heard the first podcast, and I'm excited to be part of it. Thank you. Well, we are excited to have you, and so we'll try and uh, get as much out of you as we possibly can. The cyber realm is deep and dark and kind of scary, and uh, we want to know if you can uh, help us figure some of it out. So first things first, let's say a company does get its data hacked. Can you take me through what that's like from a director's point of view? Uh, you know, how can they get that situation under control while they salvage their reputation? I think one of the main things from the director's standpoint is when there's, uh, let's say that you have been hacked, right? Um, there are a lot of people that you need to get involved, right? You need to get security involved. You need to get information technology involved. If, if employees' records um, are involved or employee files are involved, you need to get HR involved. You need to get risk management involved. So, and, and legal, obviously. I mean, I could go on for a while. Um, <laughs> what, what you want to make sure, if you do get hacked, is that um, after the hack isn't the first time all of these people sat in the room together and talked about the possibility of getting hacked. That is a terrible situation to find yourself in. You also don't want to start realizing, oh my gosh, we don't have an approved forensics firm or we don't have an, a, a forensic firm that can come in and do the network investigation to tell us what's going wrong. Let's call 12 and see who's available. Um, and whoever's available, now we've got to start negotiating contract terms to get them in on, all those sorts of things. So, um, and, and meanwhile, the, the breach is still ongoing and you're negotiating a contract with a forensic firm to get them to try and, you know, just stop the incident or figure out what went wrong, whatever the case may be. Those are the sorts of things that make directors' lives very difficult when a breach does happen. So if you work that out in advance, um, as a director, you can look at your, your company and say, okay, well, at least we're not totally screwed. I mean, it's it's bad, but... We have a plan in place. We know who we're supposed to call. Now, if you, if I were a director at a company like that, I would be like, oh, this is going to be really horrible for a couple of weeks, but we'll get through it. Um, if you have done none of that, it's, <laughs> it's going to be a disaster. You know? So it, it really depends on, on how much preparation a company's done. Um, you know, and, and, we're starting to see some, you know, individual directors named in, in breach cases, things like that. It hasn't really stuck too much yet. But, right. Um, okay. Is there any clarity as to who is responsible for these breaches? Or in other words, who do victims go after? Right. It, you know, what's really interesting. Let me take a step back quickly and, and talk about it from, from quote-unquote victims and then also sure. from, um, you know, regulator standpoint. When you're talking about, you know, the aftermath, right? Um, when, when there's a breach, as uh, an IT person even, right, like a director could call you and say, what the heck is going on? And you're going to be like, I don't know. We probably won't right. know for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. 
right, to figure out how this is all going to play out. And a lot of times you end up realizing that it was a vendor that actually opened up your network. We had a claim in the other day. Their client got hacked. Someone sent an email from their client's um, email saying, hey, can you change the bank routing number on our um, check for, for our next payment? The company that, that is our client followed up, you know, wrote and said, hey, we want to verify this is actually right. They went through their process and did the right thing and then started sending money to the wrong bank account. So they're like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, here's the email you sent us. And now who do you go against, right? And, and, and we're still working through that from an insurability standpoint, you know, because that particular event wouldn't necessarily trigger coverage under a standard cyber policy um, because the insured's networks weren't compromised, right? They just right. sent money willingly to the wrong place, um, you know, and, and in good faith. They, they sent it after trying to do some due diligence and making sure that it actually was. It was just the hackers got enough of their network covered that they could also respond to the follow-up requests and things like that um, to confirm that there actually was. And that's another thing that people forget a lot. You know, the normal hack when it happens lasts over 200 days before it's discovered. So these hackers are really finding out a lot of behavioral information. Um, on how the company operates, who's allowed to sign off on, you know, issuing checks, who is responsible for sending the bank routing numbers that are where the funds are directed to. And as soon as that person's credentials are compromised, they know that they can start to, you know, really get some, some money driven towards them. But back to your original question about who people go after, it really depends on how you were harmed by the attack, right? If your information was stolen and your identity was stolen as a result, um, that's one you know, big issue. If there is a breach at a firm that you invest in and there's a huge stock drop price, that's a different way that you might be harmed by it. So really, it, it, it depends on how you were harmed as to who you would go after in these situations. <laughs> I, I think that so far, it's been very difficult to prove damage either as a breached party whose information was breached because generally speaking, you're notified that it was, you know, it's something that happened and you're provided with credit monitoring and other services to help make you whole. Um, and similarly, what I was saying earlier about um, with directors and officers, one, it's, it's really hard to prove causation, but secondly, um, it's really hard to prove um, standing of, of any sort because really the, the directors and officers are generally covered by something called the business judgment rule which means as long as they address exposures, they look at them, they can make a business judgment decision in good faith that, you know, we don't need a cyber insurance policy, we're better served by adding, you know, 50 grand to our IT budget. And those are decisions that they can make, and, and it's very difficult to say you should have known better and you should have had a cyber insurance policy instead of spending that 50 grand on whatever, because there, there is no necessary, like, best practices or standard of care, they're starting to be with things like the NIST framework and um, the SEC's issued guidance back in 2011 around, you know, how people ought to be assessing their exposures and things like that. Um, but it, that has not been litigated out and no one, to my knowledge yet, successfully said, you should have known because NIST exists, 
that this is the way you were supposed to be doing it, and therefore business as judgment doesn't apply. Right. Um, so, and that hasn't happened yet. So, that's <laughs> it, it's all very complicated and very interesting. Yes, yes, it is. So I have to ask you, uh, you know, it 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 is very complex, and there there's so many different avenues to go down, and you can kind of find yourself in a different rabbit hole at every turn. So mm-hmm. my next question is is quite loaded. How do the good guys stay ahead? Uh, you know, there are a lot of things out there that people can try. Um, there's the concept of honeypots where people put up like literally fake companies, fake credentials, all kinds of things that have certain exploits, and then they wait for them to be um, breached. Then they can identify the IP addresses from which these breaches are happening and either blacklist that IP address so that they can't access the system at all, right? Basically saying we will not accept any network traffic from these IP addresses. But then you're constantly trying to stay ahead of what IP addresses are are good and bad. Um, that's one way. Uh, there's, there's the concept of hacking back and going on the offensive. Um, it's not something that I'm a huge fan of on a personal level, but I definitely have heard a lot of people um, saying that the reason I'm not a fan of it on a personal level is when you identify the IP addresses, you can block them, but if you hack back, you might be, just be hacking some poor schmuck's phone in Louisiana who got you know, infected with some virus and now their phone is the one that's directing traffic, um, malicious traffic to you, and they don't even know it. Well, now you hacked back that guy's phone and his phone's destroyed, and the people that were actually perpetuating the, the, <laughs> the breach are are not impacted at all. They just switch to somebody else's phone or some other IP address that they can continue going from. So that's why I find hacking back not necessarily the best, um, uh, the most effective approach necessarily. Um, but there, I, you know, there's a lot that can um, be seen. You know, monitoring web traffic out of um, different geographic regional, regions of the world. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You know, you can go in on these cyber. Um, cyber war or, you know, cyber breach um, desktop exercises where you're just kind of doing dry runs of what would happen. I was talking to someone in New York last week who was like, every one of those that I've ever done has ended with the president just pulling the plug on the Internet. And I'm like, I don't even know if the president (laughs) can pull the plug on the Internet. Well, I have to ask you, Emmy, can you tell us, without giving away too much, I don't want anybody at my front door when I go home tonight, but can you tell us a little bit more about your work in Washington with the Department of Homeland Security? Um, Yeah, I can a little bit. I mean, so what we've got going on in Washington with DHS, they've been charged by President Obama with um, finding ways of fortifying the nation's cybersecurity um, infrastructure. Uh, one of the ways that they're investigating, they've got a five-prong approach, and if I try to tell you all five prongs, I'll get it wrong. But one we'll of be the here for the next the six hours. That too. Um, <laughs> is cyber insurance. And so they're, they're investigating the feasibility of cyber insurance in helping drive um, processes that will help improve the risk posture for companies throughout the U.S. to help us fortify our network infrastructure in the private and public sector. Um, and to do this, they, they're thinking, well, what if we make cyber insurance mandatory, which I, I think everyone in the insurance industry actually said, no, please don't do that, <laughs> um, because we're, we're not ready for that volume yet. And, and honestly, um, there's probably enough capacity out there to get it done, but there, it, it would be just a project that would be very difficult. 
Um, but also, um, there's enough capacity in the market right now that even if me and five other of our major competitors decide, okay, these are the processes that we want to push, this is what we feel like will do a good job, there are enough other markets that are in the market competing for um, market share that for competitive reasons, a lot of them would probably say, yeah, you don't really have to do that, that's okay. So it undermines the effectiveness of that as an approach. So what we're trying to do in the meantime, since we've determined that mandating cyber cyber insurance won't necessarily have the impact the government's hoping it will, um, is figuring out ways to make cyber insurance more approachable for companies and for individuals. Finding ways of explaining the sorts of things that can go wrong, wrong the sorts of things they can do to prevent against it. I've been recommending some sort of public awareness campaign or mandatory staff training for companies that have more than a certain number of employees on you know, various cyber risks, um, which for the most part isn't mandatory right now, but it's a very good idea. So in any case, <laughs> what we're working on beyond that is, is a, a glossary that basically explains um, cybersecurity issues and in terms that will be a little more approachable to the average consumer and also kind of explain in context why these sorts of things are important for procuring cyber insurance and what they can do to kind of improve their risk posture around that. So it's a little bit glossary and a little bit instruction manual and it's something that we've um, in the, you know, kind of kitchen cabinet that I'm participating in have given our feedback on and it's gone back to the working group in Washington to kind of continue down that path. So more on that in probably early 2017. Um, but that's kind of what's being worked on at that level. That's awesome stuff. Emmy, thank you so much uh, for opening the door to this massive rabbit hole that we'll call cyber insurance. <laughs> okay, thanks a bunch. Thank you again to Emmy Donovan for joining us and for providing insight into how directors can protect themselves, their companies, and corporate reputation in a changing world. To find out more, please download the DNO Insurance Insights Report by clicking the link in this podcast description or by visiting the AGCS website at www.agcs.allianz.com. If you have feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcasts, email us at agcs.communication at allianz.com. On behalf of Emmy and the entire AGCS team, Mrs. Ken Reichman, we'll see you next time. <laughs>